Micah, chapter 3. If you have your Bible with you, if you don't have a Bible when you'd like one, there's some in the back you can get and uh, follow along with us. I would really encourage you to do that. It makes it a lot easier. Most of you are aware that the New Testament says that money is a root of all sorts of evil. Right? Money is the root of all sorts of evil. And when we hear that, we quickly point out that it does not say money is the root of all sorts of evil, but the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Everybody jumps to that very quickly. We assume before we take a moment to reflect that we don't have a problem. And so even if we live in a nice house with many, many toys and many opportunities for pleasures, um, we just don't worry about our love for money because we know we don't. We just, it's just a tool and all that. So, and hopefully that's what it is. It is true that money is not evil in itself, but rather the love of it. The dangerous is in not asking ourselves whether or not we do love it. Could we be content without it? And that's a really good question. Could you be content without all this stuff? And I don't know. It'd be, it'd be a, a challenge, I think, for many of us. I think it would be for me. Can I be happy with Christ in poverty if he should ordain that for me? It's just a worthwhile bit of soul work to ask that and to contemplate that because the love of money is in fact a driving force. I think you could say it's the driving force in what we call the world, our, the surrounding culture. Oh, not money itself so much, but the things that it buys, right? I mean, uh, prestige, uh, power, influence, stuff, women, um, whatever. What the Apostle John calls the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Money can help fuel the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Money empowers those very things that are directly opposed to the living God. And since we all live in a culture, and a very worldly one indeed, these are real questions for us to ask ourselves. So riches carry a spiritual danger, a form of idolatry, and maybe the most common form, choosing things over God. That's probably the most common form in our culture, the creation over the creator. What is temporal over what is eternal. We would be foolish not to ask ourselves where our hearts are because the worship of that drives our culture, the worship of stuff. You cannot live in America and not be consistently exposed to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life and the driving power of that, which is money or resources. So the restless heart that does not find rest in God is ever looking for more or better or different just to keep itself stimulated. Anything to satisfy, even just for a day, that unholy form of discontentment. As the old Broadway song says, money makes the world go around. Or so people think. And they thought that in Micah's day as well. And when money rules, other things have to give way automatically. And Micah looked at his culture just as we could look at ours and he saw that money moved justice off the front burner and took truth away out of the picture and faith was gone amongst his people. Micah chapter 3 confronts the leaders of Judah with their failure to lead properly and really gets to the reason, which is their greed Micah chapter 3 begins the second of three prophecies. We've said there's three prophecies in the book of Micah, right? And we finished the last one last week, and, and that's the first prophecy. This begins the second prophetic portion. 
and he really expands on several themes that were stated briefly in the first prophecy. Now remember, a prophet is God's mouthpiece, right? He's giving God's words, not man's words. And of course, that's why it's valuable for us to study these prophecies so we can conform our thinking, conform our actions, and even our motives to God's. Here we can know God's mind on the human condition, so that's very worth looking at. Micah chapter 3 begins with a question to the political leaders of the nation. And I said, Hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? That's a good question. Is it not for you to know justice? Of all people, don't we expect those charged with maintaining justice to understand it? These are people who deal with justice matters every day. These are people who are who the wronged go to in order to find redress. These are people who are to be doing right in a wrong world. But look how Micah describes them in verse 2. You who hate good and love evil. That's a sad commentary. Now that's a look into the heart. God looks into their heart and says, you love evil and you hate good. God sees. Now publicly they would never say that. They wouldn't say, the judges of Israel would not stand up and say, oh, I love evil, I, I hate good. They don't, they don't even talk like that. They're, they're a politician of a sort. These are the leaders of the community, the respectable, the tribal leaders, the judges, the governors. But the reality is, no matter what words they say, they hate good and, and they love evil. Do you remember how Micah described them in chapter 2, verse 1? He said, Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. And when morning comes, they do it because the, it, the power is in their hands to do it. So what they think about when they lay down at night is what they can get away with tomorrow. Now they're not thinking, I'm going to do evil. It's, I'm going to get this. It is evil, but they're not thinking evil. They're thinking possession. What do I have to do to get this? I have to move this person out of the way. How am I going to do that? Well, I will pay this person to lie about this person. I will uh, upset, overthrow them in court. I will manipulate the situation. I will get them so indebted to me that I can take away all their land. Whatever their scheme is. It's evil. They don't think about it as evil, but that's what they're thinking about. They don't think in moral terms at all. Right and wrong are not part of the mental process. But they know it's wrong because publicly they would espouse justice. They claim to dispense justice. But in their minds, hypocrisy is just another way of doing business. Public image is one thing. Secret plans for financial gain, that's another thing. And of course, when someone wrongs them, they are outraged, which shows that they do know the difference between right and wrong. And they file lawsuits and they seek justice. So they know. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who, who judge practice the same things. And that's, of course, exactly the situation you can find in any culture at any time. Any person. To judge others when you do the same thing is the most common of human crimes and it leaves us all without excuse before God. In fact, Paul continues, he says, 
we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? That's exactly what people assume. That's exactly what they think, that they'll escape. Somehow, they'll be overlooked in the great throng of humanity, because you know what people do? They say, well, yeah, I do do that, but so does everyone else. And God wouldn't send us all to hell. Assumption. <laughs> if he's going to let those people go, he's got to let me go. I mean, I know that. I'm not as bad as this guy. You know what that guy does? I don't do that. I had a friend uh, many years ago in college, and he was selling drugs, and there were certain drugs he would not sell, and he had an arrangement with God. This is in his own mind. If I don't sell these, but I sell these, don't let me get caught selling these, please. That was his deal. Not too sharp. God doesn't see, he thinks. But God does see. He sees everything. He's, and he is just. He is just. So Micah goes on and describes in metaphorical terms how the rulers of Israel treat those they have a responsibility to protect. How do they care for their people? They eat them. That's what they do. They eat them. Verse 2, you hate good and love evil, who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them, break their bones, chop them up as for the pot and as meat in a kettle. Now, they're not really doing that. This isn't the Jeffrey Dahmer Society. They're not really eating people, but that's exactly what they're doing in their behavior. They're using people like animals for food. That's, that's their perspective. When they look at human beings, what can I get out of them to increase my comfort, my possessions, my level of whatever? That's how they think. So he just puts it in very graphic, literal, animalistic terms. People are food for the belly. Labor is for my wealth. People are entirely disposable for my advancement. That's the idea. And God sees the hearts of those rulers and how they regard people and all that matters is how people can be used to enrich them. Now, people can be like this in politics and in business and in religion and in culture. I saw a really interesting documentary this week on PBS Frontline. Frontline usually has a very anti-traditional uh, show, but they had a really interesting thing. It wasn't from a Christian point of view, but it was called The Merchants of Cool. The Merchants of Cool, that was the title of the show. And it was a behind-the-scenes look at popular culture and how it deliberately targets the souls of children to make a profit. And there's even a name that these people that do all this stuff have for 12 to 14-year-old girls that they have seduced into a certain kind of dress and behavior in order to make money off of them. They call them midriffs. They're not human beings, they're midriffs. That's what they call them in their closed sessions when they're planning their advertising and all that. Little girls, the midriffs, we're going to get them. In fact, they created the whole midriff phenomenon. And they talk about it very openly, um, about how they exploit them through the media and the music and the movies to sexualize them. Britney Spears' evolution from a, a uh, stripping girl in a Catholic school to a major stripper, <laughs> that whole evolution of her uh, was all planned. It was a design thing to entice the young and then bring them along over the course of several years to a certain point to get them in a certain mode to buy products. Why? It's nothing so obvious as debauchery and lechery from their point of view. 
it's money. And they say that. They see a weakness in the human soul and they go in there and exploit it for profit. That's exactly what they do. And they're open about it. They believe money is gained through immorality. They interviewed a couple of top executives at the WB network, which when that started, it started with a frog from the Warner Brothers cartoons as their main symbol. It's supposed to be a family-oriented channel the first year. And then they had a guy sitting there and they were laughing about how they started as a family-oriented channel and then how in order to make more money they just deliberately decided to go towards immorality. Not just immorality, but as they put it, these are their words, shocking immorality because they had to get people's attention. So they created Dawson's Creek and all these twisted, perverted shows that teenagers love. Why? Money. That's what they say, money. That's the only reason. If you as a parent are not leading your children to understand why popular culture has to be resisted in a Christian heart and in a Christian home, you are spoon-feeding your own children into the kettle for these people to eat, if you want to use Micah's metaphor here. These monsters want to devour children's souls, and you're just putting your kids in the kettle for them. If you let them have at them, so teach virtue in, in mind and in heart and in dress and in your practice. The merchants of cool, they aren't going to get my money and they're not going to get my kids' hearts, not if I can help it. And we should all have that attitude, I believe. They're so powerful that they have to be actively and forcefully combated. And they will be by me. And it's a battle I am determined to win in my home and by God's grace we should try to win that battle in the church. Micah's merchants were the leaders in the political and religious realms. To him, people were valuable. To them, people existed to be used then as now. And they think God doesn't see. They really don't think he sees or care or keep track because they are prosperous and they have all the toys they want and it's going their way. But there does come a day when prosperity comes to an end and when the satisfied are suddenly deprived of, of family, of, of health, of a job. Life collapses. In Micah's day, he knew that they would be facing total collapse, invasion, by a barbarous and brutal enemy who would see them exactly the way they saw their own people as something to be used. So the conquerors come and they don't see people. They see bodies to chop up to scare people to give them stuff. That's what they see. More wealth, more power, more prestige, more fun. That's how the conquerors see it. So God ordained the fall of his own people into the hands of bar barbaric, barbaric invaders. And all that stuff was going to be lost. Now, that's going to happen happened right away to Assyria from Micah's point of view but it was another hundred years before it was going to happen to his country it would be like somebody during the civil war saying hey God is going to judge this nation and, and everybody prospered for 150 years until now and then all of a sudden the hammer falls and we think well God doesn't care because it never happens and then all of a sudden it happens in God's time and the prophet turns out to be right it's like that in terms of time I mean it's a long way off but it still happened. Everything they were building for was taken away. Everything. 
And you know what people do in times like that when the hammer finally falls? They cry out to the Lord. Oh, help us, God. Help us, please. Oh, the invaders are here. They're right outside the city. God, help us. In verse 4, it says, Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. Instead, he will hide his face from them at that time because, here's the reason, they have practiced evil deeds. You know, I think God's turning away is the greatest and most terrifying of all the judgments. Silence from him. Isn't that the essence of what hell is really going to be like? You think of the images Jesus used to describe eternal punishment. He calls it outer darkness. Outer darkness. Left alone. No help. No hope. No deliverance. Whatever the screams are or the cries are or the groans are, they're unanswered. There's no one to hear them from the perspective of the person there. Only silence. Now, in verses 5 through 7, Micah focuses his attention on other leaders of society, the religious. And guess what motivates the religious leader? Money. Again, money. We might call these individuals prophets, as he does, but they are really so-called prophets because they're not delivering words from God. They just say they are. Oh, the word of the Lord... God spoke to me in a dream last night, brother. He's going to bless you. And if you tithe 50% of what he blesses you with to me, he'll bless you even more. In fact, you might want to tithe in advance to make sure that the blessing of God comes upon you. You might want to do that, brother. Religious charlatans, liars, deceivers. They make a nice living telling people what they want to hear. These prophets are something like the crooked preachers we know, you know, the Benny Hinn characters. They claim God speaks to them, but he doesn't. And by claiming it, people offer them lots of money and hoping they get blessed. And maybe they will, maybe they won't. It's a racket. It's a racket as old as the hills. What does God think of such men? Well, verse 5 says, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry, Peace! But against him who puts nothing in their mouth, they declare holy war. They lead people astray when they are well provided. They flatter, oh God, pronounce peace upon this home. But to those who denounce or expose them, they declare holy war. Troublemakers are denounced, cursed, anathematized. If violence can be incited against them, they'll probably work a way to do that. But minimally, they'll pronounce curses and judgments. Why? For the honor of God? No. Because they're not getting their pocketbooks filled by these individuals. Their prophecies are false. They lead people astray. Their motives are mercenary. Verse 6, Therefore, here's what God says to those who call themselves seers, Therefore, it will be night for you without vision and darkness for you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets and the day will become dark over them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners will be embarrassed. Indeed, they will all cover their mouths because there is no answer from God. And again, when the hammer falls, these prophets, people are going to come to them and they're going to 
say peace, peace, as long as they can. Oh, God will, but nothing will happen. God is good. Here, give me a couple more dollars. And uh, it's going to be all right. And the, this giant army is approaching, you know, city life after cities falling to them. It's getting closer and closer. Eventually, guess what's going to happen to these individuals? People are going to catch on. When's the peace supposed to happen? And they'll uh, start picking up on the fact that they were phonies and they'll be ashamed and they'll probably be treated rather roughly. But God is going to arrange reality so that these fiends are exposed. They can say peace, but the invading armies will keep coming until the nation lies in ruins. That's what Micah is saying. Now, at verse 8, Micah does something interesting. He actually talks about himself briefly. What a genuine prophet of God is like. What's a prophet do? He tells the truth, even the unpleasant truth. And he doesn't charge, by the way. Verse 8, on the other hand, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, not dollars, with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel his sin. Micah is filled with power, he says. It's not from himself, it's from the Holy Spirit. He proclaims justice from God's point of view. He doesn't sell justice to the best payer. And Micah has courage, courage to say the truth. There needs to be a lot more courage on behalf of the truth in our day, to call sin what it is. Not with malice, not with hatred, but without compromise and with clarity. And it's going to cost something. If you do that, you're going to be what? Pegged a nut? A religious nut? A right-wing hater? A zealous extremist? Out of touch? Out of date? Etc., etc., etc.? And that's got to be okay. That has to be okay to be called that. We may have to be shut out of some group. We may lose friends. We may face mocking insults. We may be intimidated. We may be threatened. Well, that's exactly what moral courage is all about, isn't it? Those things, standing up. You know, some people, uh, courage is just an interesting subject to me. I've always been fascinated ever since I was a child, what makes people courageous. What makes one person brave and another person a coward? What quality is that? And what makes people brave in one area and cowardly in another area? Some people are, are brave enough to walk into the face of bullets and, and bombs and all kinds of horrors to save a friend from destruction. But they're terrified later with the same group of friends to go against them morally. They're afraid to not be part of the group. Isn't that interesting? So they're not afraid of bullets, but they're afraid of being ostracized by their buddies. Which makes me think part of the courage of saving their friend was part of the same desire for camaraderie and the commitment to brothers that made them courageous in one sense, but that also made them a coward in another area. I don't know. It's interesting to think about those things. Micah, I think, has the greatest kind of courage, the willingness to be alone, to stand for what's right. I think that much of battlefield courage, which I admire greatly, has to do with standing with and for other people, your comrades in arms. But moral courage means being willing to stand alone, no matter the personal, social, or political pressure or consequences. Stand alone for what's right. That's hard to do. Micah does not seek, nor does he need, approval from men social approval. 
He doesn't need standing in the community. He only needs to be true to God. He says to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel his sin. That's his job. Men of God, ministers of God, have a unique temptation. It's, it's one that's tied to the whole idea of being a pastor or a minister. Pastors see themselves sometimes as, as members of a sort of a guild or a professional association like teachers or doctors or therapists or something. And there's a danger in that. We even get special names sometimes from people. You know, Reverend. Reverend. That's a good name. That's, that's better than doctor. If I even got a doctorate, I'd rather be called Reverend. That makes it sound like they're holy. They're reverend, you know. We revere you, O oh Reverend. What? <laughs> My wife doesn't revere me. Then. She doesn't call me Reverend. She calls me Buster. No, I don't. <laughs> but but even, even pastors, it's just a nice thing to be called pastor. I mean, it's just sort of, it sort of sets you apart a little bit. Their education and training and experience set pastors apart with... With other people that have had similar kinds of training and education and experience, they kind of connect just like any professional group would do. What's wrong with that? There's plenty wrong with that, potentially. And it has to do with this desire to be included and accepted among one's peers. Just like the soldier standing in a pair of street with his buddies who are going to go do some things that aren't right. <laughs> to be thought of well by other people in the community, community leadership. That kind of acceptance in a godless age and an age of apostasy often includes the subtle pressure to not say anything. To be silent about the claims of the gospel. To let sins go, lest people think you harsh and unkind. To keep certain quarters happy by not going there wherever there might happen to be in a certain situation, there being exactly where the prophet would go. These are not glaring calls to compromise. It's usually not even said. But they're very real. I felt myself at times being surprised how easy it is to stand with a group quietly than stand alone on principle and speak up. Interestingly, I've been reading a, a new book by John Piper, written by a pastor for pastors. It's called, the title is interesting, Brethren, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. That's the title of the book. We Are Not Professionals. And he is pleading in the book for pastors to forget about having a professional mindset. He doesn't mean to be that we should be slipshod or inadequate in our habits or ministry. I mean, Piper himself is a model of energy and careful scholarship and diligence. But he means don't get caught up in a mindset that makes ministry a club where truth has to be toned down lest we offend. In fact, let me quote to you from the very beginning of his book. He says, We pastors are being killed by the professionalizing of the pastoral ministry. The mentality of the professional is not the mentality of the prophet. It is not the mentality of the slave of Christ. Professionalism has nothing to do with the essence and heart of the Christian ministry. The more professional we long to be, the more spiritual death we will leave in our wake. For there is no professional childlikeness, Matthew 18.3. There is no professional tender-heartedness, Ephesians 4. There is no professional panting after God, Psalm 42. 
But our first business is to pant after God in prayer. Our business is to weep over our sins. Is there professional weeping? Our business is to strain forward to the holiness of Christ and the prize of the upward call of God, to pummel our bodies and subdue them lest we be cast away, to deny ourselves and take up the blood-spattered cross daily. How do you carry a cross professionally? We have been crucified with Christ and yet now we live by faith in the one who loved us and gave himself for us. What is professional faith? And he just goes on like that. He's right. Professional detachment is not what we are to be after. We're to be after Christ. That's true for every Christian. It's interesting that I think three times in my ministry experience over the last however many years it's been, I've been called unprofessional by somebody. Once I really deserved it. (laughs) But twice I was called unprofessional because I was confronting somebody with their sin. And suddenly I was behaving in an unprofessional manner in their eyes. I found that very interesting, just reflecting on that after reading Piper's books. I never really thought about it before. It's not because I was angry with them. I wasn't unprofessional because I was mad. I I don't get angry when I deal with people with their sin. I, I, I was grieving, visibly grieving. And they thought that was a very unprofessional attitude. Professionals don't weep over sin. But prophets do. Pastors do. Christians do, I think. It grieves me deeply to see Christians have a clear choice and choose the world. That is a grievous thing. It makes my insides do very funny things. It does. It just, it's a weird feeling. It's a horrible feeling. If that is unprofessional, then so be it. I, I say blessed unprofessionalism because that's where we should be. I hope I never stop feeling that kind of grief. I, I hope it never becomes routine. Oh, you know, so-and-so, they went off to the world. Now well, goodbye to them. I hope I never get there. Too bad. That's not how God feels about it. And I want to feel how God feels about it. I I hope we all do. So I hope I'm never so professional that sin doesn't break my heart. The Israel of Micah's day was so lost. It required courage and passion to speak up. Look what he says to them in verse 9. Now hear this. Heads of the house of Jacob rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build with Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price. Her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Everything is twisted. Zion, the holy city, is built with criminal intent. The rulers of her take bribes. The priests, that's the first mention of priests here, they teach God's law for money. They were already provided for into the Levitical system, but here they are asking for money to teach a class or to instruct somebody in sacrifice or to instruct in the law because they don't have enough and they want more. And the prophets change the message according to money. If I pay you money, God will change his message. What a strange idea. But people did that. Then Micah says, Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Deluded, foolish people. And so typical 
Have you ever heard that? How, how dare you say God is against us because of our sin? How dare you say that? How unprofessional. Well, I'm just as religious as you are. Nobody's perfect. You have no right to judge. Does that sound familiar? It's not about judging. It's about speaking the truth. So they're counting on religion. They're counting on past blessing. They are counting on the fact that the hammer hasn't fallen yet. And they're counting on the smooth words of false prophets and false teachers who say that God doesn't get angry with his people, that he would never bring calamity, that he isn't like that. As long as you add him into the mix somewhere, he'll be satisfied. You can go right along doing what you're doing. Micah's concluding thought, verse 12, Therefore, on account of you, on account of you, he's saying to them, no accident of history, no purposeless chance is about to bring on what's coming, no other reason, he says, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. It won't be here anymore. The holy city. Zion, God's own city, his dwelling place. Your security will be plowed up like a field. Jerusalem will be laying in ruins. Even the temple will be gone. On account of you. That's the truth, says Micah. Calamity, captivity, and exile await. And looking at it from this end, of course, we know that that's exactly what happened. So... I guess if there's anything to learn from all this, it's we have to be committed to the truth. Right? Even if it costs us something, and in fact it should cost us something, because if you're following hard after God, you're going to be despised by somebody. And I don't mean being a religious past or being a hard-nosed fundamentalist and shoving a Bible down people's throat. You be an authentic, big-hearted, friendly, joyous, holy Christian in your living. And you will have the effect of making some people recoil at the mention of your name <laughs> if you stand for the truth. So be it. It has to be that way. They may slander you. So be it. You may lose friends. It's God's will. You may be shut out of some group. That's okay. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's an amazing statement. I haven't totally embraced all that that sentence means. I don't even like to think about it because I don't feel like I get persecuted that much. But it's bound to happen because a world ruled by idolatry and the worship of things will not abide those who worship God in their lives every day. Continue in love Continue in the truth. Be courageous and let God handle the results. I want to close with Paul's words in 2 Timothy. You might want to turn there where you can just listen. Because he talks about this money thing. He contrasts the genuine Christian life with false teachers who see the ministry as a means of financial gain. In verse 5, he describes them as men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And then in verse 6 he says this, 
For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Oh, I'm in 2 Timothy. I'm going to be in 1 Timothy. Boom. 1 Timothy. He is being poured out as a drink offering, but not yet. Verse 6. Godliness actually is a means of great gain. Godliness is a means of great gain. When accompanied by contentment. You've gained a lot when you're content. You know why? Because you've gained everything you need. Right? If I'm content, I have everything I want. That's a, that's a gain. Because people that aren't content never have everything they want. Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time <coughs> who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, help you. we need help to fight the good fight. We ask you to give us grace to do it, to be content, truly content, enjoying the blessings you give us, but being content and finding satisfaction in you and all that you are and all that you offer and ministering to other people and doing your work in the world. It's a great privilege. And Father, we want to be all that you want us to be. We ask you to uh, help us have the right perspective on things. That we would worship you truly and not stuff. And we'd be able to just put that right in its proper place. Thankful for it, enjoy it as you provide it, but Lord, always seeing it as something that can easily be given away because we're content with just simple things and the joy of our relationship with you. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're gonna